0: good. Let's pray. Lord God, we do ask that you open our eyes tonight to the truth of your word. Teach us, convict us, Lord. Help us to be different when we leave by the power of your Holy Spirit. It's your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Proverbs chapter 3. We will take a detour this morning um, purposely. Um, So Proverbs chapter 3. I am a fan of the Book of Proverbs, uh, and um, I like to go to it. If you notice, a lot of times that we have standalone sermons, the other elders uh, preach from Proverbs as well. Um, it's not the easiest book to preach from. Uh, usually, you get one verse, <laughs> and uh, you have to work it, work with it like that. But uh, my hope is that we will uh, examine uh, what we are entitling uh, community-driven. Generosity. Uh, what we will do is, I will preach this text, I will manipulate you, and then we will have offering plates passed around. <laughs> uh, we're not going to do that. We're not going to do that at all. If you notice, we do not pass out offering plates, so um, there will be no manipulation today, I promise. Uh, let me give you a little bit of introduction to Proverbs. I like to do this uh, just about every time I teach through Proverbs. Just want to remind us of a few things, reference. Proverbs. The book of Proverbs is in the biblical category of wisdom literature. It is almost entirely written by King Solomon, although there are some chapters, chapters 22 through chapters 24, which may actually be some common sayings of the wise, which did not originate with Solomon, but that he picked up and placed in Proverbs himself. Uh, That doesn't mean it's any less inspired. Any thought that anyone would have that would be wise at all would come from the Creator. Uh, So he may have picked those up from some others who had said things. Um, He wrote about 3,000 Proverbs. We get that from 1 Kings uh, chapter 4. Um, And it was not compiled, this book of Proverbs wasn't compiled uh, in a final way uh, until... Um, sometime during or right after King Hezekiah, uh, which puts it around 686 B.C. Now, if you remember from Sunday school, if you remember uh, from VBS, if you grew up that way, that Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 3 was asked basically what he wanted, riches, whatever he wanted, and uh, King Solomon asked for wisdom instead, uh, and God uh, granted him not only great wisdom, uh, but also riches and honor um, and several other things. And so um, uh, clearly what we read is the inspired word of God that he spoke through uh, the wise King Solomon who was granted wisdom by God himself. Now the word proverb means to be like. And so Proverbs is a book of comparisons between common and well-known images and profound truths that we find in life. They tend to be very simple moral statements uh, or illustrations that teach these fundamental truths about life. And if you read the entire book of Proverbs, you will get a feel for who his audience was uh, intended to be. Uh, A king writing to his sons, giving them wisdom about what was going to take. That's why there is a tremendous uh, amount of emphasis placed on um, women and how they should or should not deal with them. And so uh, that tends to be the audience, although we can glean uh, many truths uh, from his writings. And one last item I just want to hammer down in reference to us, for those of us who grew up in the Bible Belt, and to maybe relieve you of some money that you might spend at a Bible bookstore, uh, Proverbs is not a book of promises uh, in the sense that many people take it. Uh, Proverbs uh, as, you know, it's a literary form of, of wisdom literature. Uh, it's not direct promises, meaning you can't take a proverb and claim that as absolute, never-fail truth that must take place all the time. Rather, uh, they are general observations by King Solomon of what is typically true, meaning if you do it this way, this tends to happen, or if you go do that that you should not do, these things tend to happen. One of the most common that are on a lot of, um, I don't know, kitchen walls or maybe um, paddles <laughs> is Proverbs 22.6. Yeah. Train up a child in the way he should go, and even when he is old, he will not depart from it. That's an example that many people will quote as a promise of God. But that's not what King Solomon is doing. Because that would mean that anyone who was trained or raised in the Christian faith would have to return to it. And we know that not to be always the case. Um, So, much of Proverbs does give us how, or gives us direction on how life tends to go based on actions and decisions, so we can glean much from this book on the truth of living in this world. Now, Proverbs, I have always found, uh, to be a very favorite book of mine. I I was challenged as a young teenager by uh, one of the seven youth ministers I had in four years. Uh, (laughs) I was the only person in the youth group, you take that for what that means, um, but to read a proverb that corresponds with the day of the week, and so I did that for years to a point that you could quote half of a proverb and I could fill it in for you. Uh, unfortunately, I, I don't do that as much anymore, uh, but I've enjoyed the book, and so it, it, uh, um, it, it has gained me some wisdom over the years, like one who meddles in a quarrel, not his own. It's like a dog, one who grabs a dog by the ears. Uh, and so that one uh, has kept me out of trouble a few times, uh, for sure. But uh, nevertheless, uh, it is a difficult book to preach from because you get a single, usually a single verse. However, if you take that verse as a general truth and then you look for the biblical context throughout the Bible, you, know, you generally can um, preach uh, a fairly... Uh, well-founded sermon um, on that particular subject. So we have chosen for our church community-driven generosity. And so if you did not bring a checkbook, it's okay. We'll get you later. (laughs) If you did, you don't have to worry. We're not going to ask you to do anything today. But I do want to challenge us with uh, the scriptures today regarding how we are generous As a body of believers, we're going to pick that up in Proverbs chapter 3. In this particular case, we're going to get two verses. In Proverbs chapter 3, 27 through 28, it says this Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to do it. Do not say to your neighbor, Go and come again tomorrow, and I will give it when you have it with you. Now, That's an interesting passage, interesting set of verses. Uh, How do we build on that? Well, let's first study the word, the Hebrew um, word here uh, that indicates neighbor, uh, tends or generally indicates a person in which you have a relationship with, this particular Hebrew word uh, indicates an intimate relationship such as a friend or a companion or an associate. Uh, we have to be careful using our modern-day idea of neighbor uh, because how many of y'all have neighbors that you know nothing about? So that's, that's not what we would be thinking of in the Hebrew here. This would be thinking of a relationship with someone that you do know or that you know fairly well. So you would say it this way. Uh, do not say to your friend... Do not say to your companion, do not say to your brother or sister, do not say to someone that you know, go and come again, and tomorrow I will give it to you when you have it with you today. So there seems to also in this passage, um, based on the Hebrew, there tends to be an urgency to the giving, Uh, this idea that if you have a need and you have the ability to meet that need you should meet the need the companion or friend is in need of something to be done or maybe given uh, that the scripture here considers good Uh, and in fact the indication for the text is they are indeed deserving of it uh, or maybe in need of it and we also see in this text um the power or the ability to dispense this good rests in a person that they have a relationship with and the scripture seems to indicate they should give it. Um, It means we don't tell someone to come back tomorrow if you have the ability at that moment to solve their problem now. It also seems, um, based on the language, that this is a material need. So we could sum up the proverb like this. If someone you know needs something material and it rests within your power to give it, you should give it then. Keith's going to come play a song and we're going (laughs) to... Well, that's convicting. Uh, But obviously, we need some wisdom on this and what this might look like through the New Testament. Because you may be here saying, well, Jason, that's Old Testament. That's not New Testament. Well, I think you heard the seriousness of this topic in our elder reading from James 2. I want to reread it. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, and this is reference to saving faith, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? In other words, can a faith that never is demonstrated with any work be a saving faith? In verse 15, James says, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, now stop right there, that means that you, if you have saving faith, and you observe that somebody is struggling with these things, it's, and you were to say, Go in peace, Be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? So also by faith itself, if it does not have works, is dead. It is common if you've grown up in the church to hear somebody in a classroom or before church or after church, or maybe on a phone call, or in a men's ministry, or in a women's ministry, or various other places that we as believers gather, you will hear about somebody's struggle. And the most common spiritual answer we give them is what? We'll be praying for you. How many of you have actually not prayed for them when you left? The scripture would say that's sinful. Sinful. If if you have the ability, if it's within your means to to meet that need, then we should meet that need. And to not do so is to have evidence of a saving faith that is not real. Do we pass the plates yet? It's convicting, isn't it? Because by now, most of you are beginning to you're beginning to number your objections, aren't you? Yeah, but, but what if they got themselves into that situation? Right? Why do I have to be the one to give it? Shouldn't there be more ways to look at this? And I think there is. I think there are some other ways that we can look at this. But just for now, uh, I would say that's what we see in the text. And it seems to be pretty straightforward and convicting, but... Um, some of you may say, "Okay, okay, I, I, I hear that," um, but really, Jason, that's that's really a discussion of what saving faith is, and they just happens to use that example as the evidence of work. I'm not, not sure. I'm not sure that's really a context uh, on giving. Well, okay, um, let's go look at the Apostle John then. Uh, The Apostle John in 1 John chapter 3 may provide a little bit more clarity for us. He says it this way in 1 John 3, 16 through 18. He says, by this we know love, that he, Jesus, laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Well, the stakes just got higher. We went from material goods to laying our lives down for them. And then verse 17 tries to add a little bit of clarification. And it says this, but if anyone has the world's goods, everyone raise your hand. It's not charismatic yet to raise your hand. That includes you, includes all of us. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? That's rather strong. Then verse 18. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed. And in truth. I know Wayne has said this before, and I doubt it originated with him, but he has said before uh, generally, after all has been said and done, uh, more has been said than ever actually done. And that tends to be the case in most, if I would say most, New Testament churches. Because it seems to be very clear here that we have a calling. As believers, to be generous, and John compares that with the sacrifice that Christ made for us and then calls us as believers to make the same level of sacrifice for our brothers and sisters who are in need. Basically, he is echoing what James is saying. If you have a claim that you have saving faith... And that you worship the King of kings and the Lord of lords and the sustainer of all things. And that we are brothers and sisters adopted into the kingdom who will one day dwell forever together. But you see a need in their life that you have the ability to meet and you turn away from that. The Bible questions whether or not you are a believer. That's strong. James argues that to meet that need actually shows as a fruit your conversion. And John says to not go and meet that need shows a fruit of not being converted. And you're like, geez, it's Sunday night. We were coming here just to get a good one to leave. So, what do you do? What do we do with all of this? Well, I think from Scripture it is clear that there's. Are y'all is it? Are you a little heavy now? It's a little quiet in here. All of a sudden, you ought to have to write the sermons. It's clear that generosity towards our Christian brothers and sisters is, according to the Bible, an evidence of our conversion. It's clear as a bell. By and large, and we all know this, we all feel this, by and large, we are selfish people. Attempting to build our own kingdoms and giving away what God has given us is hard for us to do. Mainly because of the American culture. I worked for it. I earned it. And it is mine. But nothing is yours that God did not give you. And when we come to Christ as dead people who are made alive in Christ, so that everything that we have no longer belongs to us. Now, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, if you remember us teaching through this, and we'll make reference to this in a minute, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul, in writing to Timothy, did not tell the wealthy to give away all their money. He did not tell them to do that. And we have that you can clearly enjoy your possessions and no matter what we would like to do about it, there will always be different levels of financial status within a church. Plain and simple. Some have jobs that pay different levels. But at the same token, in that chapter, Paul tells Timothy, to tell the rich to be rich in good deeds and to be generous with what they have. It was a command. And I made the statement when we talked through 1 Timothy that I would, most of us would say, Well, that's not talking about me, because I'm not rich. But just about every other country in the world would disagree with you. And you, if they were reading that text, would be thinking about you that we are rich. Number two, Giving, I think when you walk through this, and I've made reference to this before, and I'm going to make reference to it again. If you do a study of how the Old Testament Israelites and how the New Testament saints gave and what they did with their money when it came to generosity, they almost always directed their giving to other believers. not to the lost. Now this was crucial because when you look at church discipline and you take an idea of Acts 2, which is whether it be prescriptive or descriptive, doesn't matter, it was occurring. And if you were in Acts 2 or Acts 4 and they were selling property that each possessed and gave that money to the basically to the apostles to distribute to those who had need, then you despite the different economic statuses that you may have had in the New Testament times, which could be very different, no different than it is today, and you had a need, you had complete assurance that as a believer in a local context, that need would be met. But if you were excommunicated out of the body of believers, you lost that ability. And that was one of the ideas that when you recognize that you lost that ability, that that would convict you of your sin and that you would miss the relationship that you had with God's people and that would bring you back. Hard for us to do that today. If you get excommunicated for a church today because of sin, uh, unrepentant sin, uh, you can just go right down the street and join another church. No one checks, by and large. But whether we see that the way it used to be or not, the fact is that in the Scriptures, they gave gifts to believers because Christians place a much, much higher priority, or should, on taking care of their fellow brothers and sisters in Christ before others as an evidence of their faith. When we give towards unbelievers, it should only be in gospel-centered ways that give us gospel opportunities. Now, if you're sitting here thinking, well, I don't know that I agree with that. I need you to understand something. Just about everybody at Christmas time, whether they worship Buddha or nobody or whatever, will give money to the poor. That, that's not hard. There's no there's no difference there. It is a huge deal. When your financial struggles are handled or um, carried by other Christian believers, and then you, when someone says, hey, hey, how did you get that need met? You go, you won't believe this. I go to this church, and I became a new believer, and I'm following Christ, and and I had this need, and, and the church met that need. By and large, charity organizations in early American history were handled by the church. So, we see that in the scripture. And then number three, the Bible assumes, assumes in all these texts, that there is a relationship that exists. The Bible over and over and over again declares this type of Christian community driven kind of generosity. For the most part, in order to, to know a need and in order to meet the need, you would have to have some kind of relationship with those people to discover it. But the way most of us do church, and and this is not, um, I'm not trying to fix a problem necessarily at Sovereign Life, but I am going to try to prevent one. If what we do at Sovereign Life as we continue to grow, we're three times larger than we were a year and a half ago. I love telling people that. My church has gone up three times. They're like, wow, how many of y'all run now? About 90. (laughs) They're always like, oh. (laughs) Anyway. But if all we ever do is we come in, Five minutes before the service starts, if you came early, or five minutes, I'm not talking about you. But if you come in, let me rephrase it so no one gets offended. If you come in regularly, five minutes before the service starts, and you leave when it's immediately over, and you never develop relationships with people, you need to understand that you will never discover the needs of fellow believers, and they will never discover yours. And that's the way some of you want it. And that is not a biblical idea of the gathering of the believers. Now, number four, for some of you who have an objection in your mind, I'm going to sustain part of that objection. Not all needs are needs. How many of you ever had your kids say, but I need it. And we're like, you don't need that. But we as adults do the same thing, do we not? But I need this. In fact, if you're in debt, and I'll raise my hand, you got there because you purchased something that you thought you needed that you didn't really have the money to pay for. And so some of these things we get ourselves in a bind because we think that there are needs that are not truly needs. But there should be, because of that, a accountability system within the Christian community. And I think in our church that rests with the elders. I think if you are aware of a need, but you are not fully educated on what might be happening in that family's life, I think it would be wise to bring in the elders to decide that. Remember, if you're a big capitalist in here, you may be thinking, well, this sounds like socialism. Selling my property and give it to somebody who didn't work for it. But that's not socialism in the scripture because socialism is forced by the government. This kind of Christian sharing is willingly done out of a converted heart. It is anti-cultural to give what you have worked for to help someone else who has not work for it the unbelieving world says that doesn't make sense it makes sense at christmas it doesn't make sense in may but when the christian community consistently lives that way when we give up things that we could easily afford but instead we help somebody else who cannot do something that they really need the rest of the world goes well that's weird they didn't go to school as long as you did They didn't interview as well as you did. They don't work as hard as you do. And by and large, that's how we think. We look at our bank accounts, and if it's going well, we think it's us. If it's going badly, what do we say? God, what's going on? Because we think this stuff belongs to us, and the Bible over and over says that is not the case. And number five... This is not a command simply for those who have extra or who are considered wealthy. Although we do have that specific command, like I said earlier, for those in 1 Timothy 6, 18 who are actually wealthy. None of these passages today use your standard of wealth as a launching pad for your generosity. None of them say, if you are doing well, then... Meet your neighbor or brother's needs. That's not what it says. Instead, the Bible teaches that this is an act of obedience born out of a converted heart. Now, let me give you my own experience with this just to show you how it can change lives. I have been in ministry uh, most of the time for, since I was 19, and Uh, As my parents uh, will attest to you, most of that time I have been poor. (laughs) Church ministry is rarely thought of as a um, job in which you can get wealthy. Um, But nevertheless, I I have served in some churches who really felt like the best way to make you humble, this is not one of those churches, but the best way to keep your pastors humble uh, is to make sure they never actually have all their needs met. That's how you can keep control of them. But in my lifetime, I've had three cars given to my family. None of them were great cars, to be fair. One of them, when you rolled the window down, you had to hold the window uh, because the clips didn't work. And so when you did a drive-through and you rolled it down, you had to hold it down. And if they tried to hand you a Coke, you had to hold the window when you got the Coke. And if you didn't, it fell into the door. I mean, And one, when you got up to a certain speed, it would do like this. And I think I've shared with you before that if you're driving an old car, one that was given to me by my great aunt, uh, even though uh, it was a gift, uh, when you drive straight up the uh, Beltway 8 bridge over the ship channel, it does not go very fast. And at that point, it was only one lane back then, and you will back up most of Houston uh, behind you. (laughs) And then when you get down and it breaks into two lanes, they will all drive by you and give you certain gestures to make you understand how you felt about that. That was my car. Not long after I got one of those cars, my wife and I, because of financial reasons, decided to give up our cell phones. Two days later, on the way to visit the hospital in Houston, I had my first flat. And the spare was flat. And I walked. Not happy. I did not worship well during that time. But nevertheless, there were three cars that met our needs, given to me by people who were anything but wealthy. One of them was another pastor who had a spare car who said, Your family needs a car. It's not much, but it runs and the air conditioner and blows cold, which was true. It blew like this. I mean,. <laughs> But it was there. You know, in Houston, you needed it. My laptop was stolen when I was attending school, and it was replaced by a church member. We have had numerous, numerous gift cards given for my wife and I to go on dates. We have had numerous. It's all money. Here, here's one that's not money. I've had numerous people offer to babysit my children for free when they were small so that my wife and I could go eat. Huge. For my wife and I's relationship huge we had a lady give my wife about $700 to buy clothes uh, my wife was ecstatic but she also came to me and she said I guess people know I don't have very much <laughs> because they gave me some money we had money given to us for a barbecue grill, which doesn't seem like a very interesting thing to you, but my family, when our children were very small, we wanted to have a, a grill in the back because we didn't have any money to go anywhere, and we thought we could grill in the backyard and make it a family event, and somebody said, we can meet that need, and they bought us a barbecue grill. We've had meals provided so often for us. We have had trips provided by church members, by friends, even once by a Christian radio station. We have had Entire weeks of groceries provided for us. Once we had a man who was a pastor who lived next door to us, and when my company failed, so this was recent, when my company failed and we lost just about everything we had, including all of our cars and had very little money, a pastor who ran a food ministry found out about it and at the end of every week brought us bread and food and fruits and pastries My wife took a picture once. It looked like Christmas one day. He covered the entire dining room. And my wife said, God is faithful. That's generous. People are generous, and it met our needs. We have had constant cards given to us with $20 in it or $40 in it. Once we were given a house to live in rent-free, it had been condemned. But nevertheless, (laughs) we were able to live in it, and it was free. We had a church member give us free haircuts for our children, which saved us $60 every time we did something. Not to mention all that my parents and brothers did for us. They have told me that I am not in the will because I already got my money. And that doesn't count all of the things that this wonderful church has done for us already. And I could go on and on and on and on. And I bet Keith could and I bet Wayne could. Could go on and on and on about the faithfulness of God through his people. And these are people in my life, almost every single one of them was not considered rich or even considered well off by American standards. And yet they were generous toward my family. And for a wife and a husband who hadn't had time to be together, just to have coffee, for someone to come and provide babysitting and provide a gift card to go eat was life-changing for us. And our faith as a family grew. We were able to point our kids to the faithfulness of God. My wife would say, we're going to pray for this and the strangest things would happen through God's People, and my faith grew, and my children saw it, and my wife's faith grew, and it caused us to worship our Savior more, and we as a church, no matter what your financial status is, no matter how little you have, every single time we gather, you have the ability to change somebody's life, even for a moment, even for a two-hour dinner, even for a three-hour babysitting time. That's what rests in our hands. And I would tell you, I would like our church to be known for this. I would like for people to walk through for the next 25 years in our church, and one day they recite to their kids, do you remember when this happened and that happened and people met this need and met this need and met this need? And do you know why we do it? We do it as an obedience to a Savior who left it all to rescue us. And it's simply reflecting what He has already done for us. So how do we do this in closing? We need to be intentional with building relationships within our church. You have to build a Christian community that has our eyes open and our ears open to listen and see what kinds of needs are among us. And sometimes, yes, that means you will open your wallet. Not not to give it to us or not to even give it to the church but to just run by and add a twenty dollars gift card to your grocery list, so you can walk to a young couple who has young children and say, "Hey, just want you to go to dinner tonight on us." And if you need help with babysitting, I'll open my calendar up for that as well. Let's be that kind of a church that is marked by a community of believers. That gather and love one another and we don't say, I'll just pray for you. But we say, I'll pray for you. Let me ask you this. If I were to do this, would that help in your situation? Would that help? Because we would like to do that for you. Let's be that kind of church. Taking care and loving our own. And that makes a world recognize that the gospel is real, and that it changes people. And you would say, "What is the gospel?" I'm so glad you asked. Here's the gospel. You were born into sin. No one had to teach you how to sin. You sin naturally. You are a, you are left to your own heart, an evil, selfish. Sinful person who will always put you above everybody else. And that kind of person who we have all been was in opposition to who God is. And even in our opposition and even in our sin, God loved us so much that he sent Christ to come to this earth to leave everything behind take on the form of a human, to live a life that we could never live perfect, to take our punishment on the cross that we richly deserved. And for those who repent and believe in Christ and his sacrifice are forever changed and brought back into a right relationship with the Father. You go from being, I'm only thinking about myself to suddenly, without you even understanding why, you begin to go, well, I need to help other people. I need to be thinking about this. You begin to think about the things of God when you never thought about the things of God before. You will not be perfect, but you will be changed. And the way that we know that you're a believer is not because you repeated a prayer but because you have evidence of God working in your life. And one of those evidences is that when we see a Christian brother in need, we don't close our hearts, but instead we open our hearts. And even when we can't meet that need, we can find other people who might gather with us to go meet that need. And that is the evidence one of the evidences of the gospel. I'm going to pray for us as Keith come. I think we would sing some good songs here. Um, I hope this um, impacted you the way it has me. It was fun to write all the things that God has done for us through the lives of other people. And I pray that I would be the same kind of pastor, that I would be a giver uh, just as much as you have been so giving to us. And that our church would be known for that. Let me pray for us. Lord God, you are good to us. Thank you for the generosity you have shown us through Christ. Thank you for not leaving me to my own evil desires. Thank you for not uh, leaving me to figure this out on my own. But thank you, Lord, for your love. That you sent Christ to take my punishment on the cross. And that you drew me to your side. You took the scales off my eyes. Let me me see the beauty of the gospel. I thank you for that. And God, I pray uh, that our church uh, would be marked with people who love you with a passion. And that we would love each other with generous hearts. With our our money, our calendars, uh, a listening ear, companionship. God, whatever it may be, that you would call us to be people who are generous. And that we would never call anything our own, but God, we would call it all yours. And that we would live lives with open hands for you to take whatever you need that belongs to you anyway and give to whoever you would move us to give to, Lord. We love you. It's your name we pray. Amen.